This is Piecing It All Together. Live chat. I'm Randy Woodley. A human. I'm Bo Sanders. <laughs> I'm Bo Sanders, and we are joined by three guests so far. We want to introduce Alicia, Ryan, and Rob. We're glad to have you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Last, glad to be here. Good to be here. The last name was called to prevent lawsuits. But you can say your last name if you want to. But I just I didn't want to offer that up to the world. <laughs> I don't trust the interwebs. No, they're shady. <laughs> uh, Alicia, why don't you introduce yourself, and then we'll go Ryan and then Rob, just okay. so that people can uh, identify voices when they come up. Okay. I am Alicia Monroe, and I get trolled regularly, so it's whatever. Um, I am a seminary student and a free-range pastor, and uh, generally causing disruption to the patriarchy when I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, wait a minute, Alicia. You said yeah. free range. Is that organic free range? Oh uh, yeah, uh, not caged. Not caged. Cage free. Cage free. Oh, cage free. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not single origin, but no. um, locally sourced. Both wild and holy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great, Ryan. <laughs> Yes, I'm Ryan. I like short walks on the beach because long walks make me tired and, and uh, sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been around that. You don't want to be around that with Ryan, so I've been around that. So I'm trying to be the best human I can be, serving in uh, the United States Navy. So trying to do the best I can do uh, while serving and uh, trying to to live in the tension. Rob? Hi there, uh, Rob, a servant in church ministry, uh, average white evangelical, um, and uh, summer breezes make me feel fine. Oh, nice callback. Thank yeah, you. if you're old enough to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was a litmus test or what the Bible calls a shibboleth, and our older listeners will know what Rob just did. <laughs> or people who listen to classic Spotify, I guess. There you go. Yeah. We are excited to be live this morning and to chat with you. Um, so I just wanted to recap. Since our live last live chat, we've put out 10 episodes. Uh, Randy's Stoudemire Lectures and then the Q&A from that. Um, Ancient Wisdom and Worldview, where he was at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. Then Randy and I talked about DNA and belonging, um, somewhat in reaction to Elizabeth Warren uh, getting a DNA test and the the backfire that came from that. Uh, Then Randy and I responded to some Q&A, and it got kind of nerdy because somebody had uh, asked about, like, process, relational thought, and and so that one was kind of heady. Uh, We played the LuxCast crossover where Randy was at Western Seminary, and he got to talk. Uh, with a guy there who wasn't really that familiar with Randy's work, and so he asked some great uh, introductory questions. Then we talked about naming an identity with my friend Alan Buck, and uh, Randy and Alan connected on so many uh, Cherokee and Oklahoma things, and that was a fantastic conversation. More recently, we talked about the environment, And so that was uh, obviously timely, and a lot has happened even since then. Randy said if we had recorded that episode just one week later, he would have had twice as much material. 
And then um, we had Edith on to talk about missing and murdered indigenous women. That episode is getting a lot of good feedback. And then just last night, I put out one on interfaith and colonial mission. So that gives us a lot to talk about in this first segment where we just wanted to sort of hear from you what is resonating with you or what is rubbing you the wrong way. What do you want to talk about? Uh, so it's kind of an open forum. So segment one here is just going to be about those 10 episodes. Segment two is just going to be about anything uh, free form wild card that you guys bring to the table. And then uh, if there's time for a third section, I want to run an idea past you. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. So uh, you all are faithful listeners and uh, we have been cranking out the episodes. What grabbed your attention there? So the missing indigenous women episode is really hard. Um, it's not new information for me and um, hearing it from a perspective of somebody I've met in real life is um, it's a lot. Um, the trauma in the stories is really loud. So that was a hard one to get through. Um, I enjoyed um, the conversation you guys had with Alan um, and towards the end of um, the podcast with Alan, he had mentioned um, some of the work he does in intergenerational trauma work. And I would love to hear more about what that looks like either in a future podcast or um, that's kind of my lane is trauma work. So um, hearing about how that can be applied. Um, I come from generations of trauma. And so um, healing from those wounds, both present, my children, and then for future um, generations is really important so that we're raising healthy men who will not keep perpetuating the cycle. Yeah. And this also relates back to the missing and murder because part of the reason that so many of these women uh, are prey is because of the homes that they were raised in, which yeah. were most of them a uh, result of tragedy like boarding school trauma. Yeah. Well, and I mean, for me, that's next level. Like it's bad enough that we have, I've got my family trauma, but it's not as the result of the culture that I live in necessarily. Um, and how we as a culture have created this environment where we have destroyed families and culture and language and art. And this is what this looks like generations later. Um, I have a lot of feelings about that. <laughs> And, um, it's a long road to healing. And I, f I do feel like we have a responsibility as white people to contribute towards healing, um, in whatever way that looks like as junior partners. So we're not coming in as white saviors and trying to fix it, but we are part of the problem and, um, it's, we can't pretend that we're not. Alicia, this may not be a helpful question, but one of the, <laughs> ask one of anyway. The, <laughs> I do. Uh, one of the things that I have been thinking about ever since that conversation is that in Western white culture, we often look to therapy mm -hmm. uh, or even you know twelve step programs as um, mostly as a solution, but we don't have uh, often a place for ceremony. In healing, mm -hmm. have you done any work or thought about what that would look like or, or how we could integrate that? 
Um, for me, like I am a trauma survivor. And um, so my journey has been a lot of healing work. And I think culturally, um, just as Americans, we don't do things like grieve or lament. And we rush past our the pain and we dismiss other people's pain because it makes us deeply uncomfortable. And rather than just saying when somebody shares, like, I've had this really hard, painful thing happen, rather than saying, I'm sorry, you've experienced that we rush through it or we, well, or at least you didn't have this happen, you know, as if um, we're in some sort of trauma competition or minimizing. And so um, one of the things that has been important for me in my own healing is to allow myself the process um, to be present with the grief and to lament and understand that um, grief is heavy and it's loud, um, but it doesn't actually consume you. Um, We get consumed by emotions that we are dismissing and stuffing. Um, and if you allow yourself to be present with the grief and the pain, it will pass through you and you, you will be able to heal from it. But when we're denying it and not allowing that part of the healing process to happen, we're just going to get, we're going to stay stuck. And that's how we end up stuck in generational things because we, this is what's been handed down to us. Yeah. Alicia, um, one of the things I've noticed in my context Mm -hmm. is that there are so many, uh, military personnel with backgrounds of abuse and trauma. Yeah. And it almost seems like it is a, um, a catch all. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, did, from your experience, do you see that or do you have a different perspective on that? Um, I will say, I think when you go into the military, generally you're very young. And for me, I traded one dysfunctional family for a larger dysfunctional family. Um, I will say um, for me, though, getting out of my family of origin helped me to um, start healing some of those things. And it created a break or fracture where it created enough of emotional space. But I, you know, I left rural Oregon and... um, I was a small town girl and all of a sudden I'm with all of these people from all over the country. So, um, you know, you put a bunch of broken people in proximity with one another and they're going to continue to damage each other. Mm. So, um, I don't know that the military is designed to be a holistic healing experience. What? I, you know, and, and (laughs) I will say, you know, some of the traumas that I experienced in the military, like, I mean, it was 20 plus years ago, but like their ability to deal with the fact that trauma had occurred and that counseling or, you know, some sort of healing process needed to happen. They were not about that. I actually um, was pushing for counseling and almost got a court martial for requesting counseling because they had offered me a four day pass instead of counseling because that's how that works. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, Rob and I over the last 20 years have done a lot of talking and, and, uh, designing of initiation rights for young people because it's something that we noticed a lack of in our culture, yeah. in our in our social environment, and so um, I know Rob that that continues to be something that's on your heart yeah. for uh, specifically young men, just because that's in your context, but also uh, young women now that you have uh, kids of your own. And so I just thought maybe um, either you or Randy might want to or anybody might want to speak to um, just the the element of initiating our young people in ways that are empowering and welcoming into the adult community. I know that the absence of that is um, catastrophic. I'm glad you brought that up. 
here's here's my current um, thoughts on on uh, initiation rites of passage. It's something that I was I was an assistant pastor for a number of years, and then was a senior pastor, and now I'm an assistant pastor again. Um, I had a real passion for masculine initiation and rites of passage when I was an assistant. Mm-hmm. And then as a senior, I found that my care had to extend to a wider group of people. Um, and as a, a church that uh, was affirming women in leadership, um, I felt like I had to have a, a broader approach to uh, rites of passage and initiation. Now I find myself back working with lots of guys in my current context um, and uh, thrust into the, to the role of men's ministry in particular. And uh, one of the things that, that I'm noticing is that there is this desire among white Christian guys when it comes to men's ministry to return to the way things used to be. This is just, it comes up over and over and over again, reclaiming our place in X. And that's just not language. First of all, I'm not comfortable with that language. And second of all, I keep thinking to myself, guys, thinking this way got us where we are, and we still haven't really addressed a lot of the core issues of our own hearts and our own wounding. Um, I, I think we're we're focusing on the wrong stuff here. So that's just a, a little nibble of, of what I'm having to address here in the next uh, several months with the men's ministry. I, I think we need to make men great again. <laughs> no, you're you joking. Summed up the problem. You're joking, but some people would say amen to that. Oh, I yeah. guess so. You know, I I don't I don't have a whole lot of uh, you know. I just got to be honest. Uh, yeah, because that's all I can do. I I, I don't have a lot of of coddling instincts for white guys who are you know feeling rejected and things. It's. It's not that I don't love them. It's that I think there's some bigger picture things at play here that people have to, otherwise we're just kind of, you know, um, you know, uh, trimming the branches rather than going for the roots. And, mm-hmm. and yeah. so um, we're, we need to deal with the big issues in our society. We need to take responsibility for those things because they cause so many of the other things that go on. And so I like to get to the root of stuff. Um, you know, one of the, uh, uh, you know, I, th- I think there's a whole sort of, um, what's the word, um, surface uh, kinds of problems that, that we claim in society that really are go to a much deeper root. You know, we're, I mean, in truth, if I'm going to just like get right down to it, you know, we're all part of a sort of a neoliberal kind of swoop that wants us to believe, you know, the, the you know, the, the one group against the other and all that kind of stuff. When we're all caught up into this sort of, uh, you know, we're being swept out in the ocean by this sort of neoliberal agenda, right? And um, and we think some people are, you know, conservative and some people are liberal. And, and uh, you know, we think that, you know... Um, Here's a great example. You know, we just, uh, President Bush just passed away recently, right? Oh, he becomes mm-hmm. this great hero, right? Um, right. And yet, uh, he was just like all the presidents, right? In, in, you know, he's responsible for the Gulf War and Panama and, you know, his son responsible for Iraq and Afghanistan and, 
in Obama, Libya, Syria, and uh, you know, Ukraine and Afghanistan, yeah, Yemen. Um, you know, Clinton had his, Carter had his. You know, because they're all. It doesn't matter if you're conservative or progressive; they are all creating money for the same people. And um, I think, you know, uh, I can speak to men because I'm a man, but I don't think this is exclusive to men. I think we need to uh, be men of character and stand up to these kinds of things and stop pitting, uh, um, uh, letting them pit us against each other and just say, no, we're all human beings. And what we need to work for is a more human, equitable planet. And that has to begin with the earth. And so, you know, I, I guess I feel like there's bigger fish to fry for us to, to um, and, and then maybe in that, some of that healing will come. Yeah, so sorry to sound hard-hearted and callous, but that's just sort of where I'm at. Provide a counterpoint here and say, Randy, that I do have great compassion for men that are disoriented in our modern technological society. And let me just lay out four reasons why. We are alienated from the products. I love numbers, you know that, as a... As a white guy, I love lists. Yes, I was going to say, it's the, really the list. <laughs> We're alienated from the product of our labor. So I go on a camping trip every May with guys who I love, and we've been doing this for uh, about 15 years. And it dawned on me two years ago when we were sitting around the fire that not a single one of us or our uh, partners or spouses, not one of us make a damn thing. Every single one of us is in a service industry. We don't have anything to show for our labor. We are alienated from the product of our labor. We live in a disenchanted world. And so even those of us who are trying to read the Bible, we don't live in an enchanted world like the Bible was written in. That, you know, that we live in this world where we don't see the kind of interventionist angelic forces that we read about in scripture. And so we are distanced from that enchantment. We're overwhelmed by our technology. And because we're all socialized and we can only live into the story that we've been uh, initiated in, we are overwhelmed by our current circumstances. And then we are discouraged because we see what's happening in the world, whether it's stories like, um, you know, our governmental gridlock that's happening or, you know, something in our own families and this divorce culture and so many other things that we just feel overwhelmed that we think, well, I don't even know how to address this. So I do have a little bit of compassion for specifically men who feel disoriented in this new way of being in the world in the 21st century. It really is quite overwhelming. Yeah. And I I thought you were going to make counterpoints. You just made four of my points. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My fault. I apologize. (laughs) So, yeah. So I'm talking about what is causing all of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And that's why I think we need to go to the root. We, we, we are disoriented. We are disconnected. We are not working at a a local level um, because we're feeding into this global globalism and global market. Mm -hmm. And we're having, now we're, we're, you know, having and about to have possibly wars over globalization and who's going to control it. Right. So, so we got to get to the root of this thing, quit playing the game of the people in power who have all the wealth and get down to where the people are at. And let's, let's create our own kinds of systems um, that work for the majority of the people, not the ones that work for the 1%. Mm -hmm. That is awesome. And I just want to say an episode I want to do in the new year, Randy, is I want to talk about 
a real privilege, not the privilege of skin color necessarily or, you know, whatever it is, economic status, but the fact that like even you and I can't say anything we want because we work for somebody else, we have limitations, right? So even though we have relative privilege, there are folks in the 1% that are truly privileged. And I'd like to tackle that in the new year. Here's my, um, my, my thought question slash comment. If nobody else minds me button in here, I just sent you guys a link to a Christianity today article, um, talking about the positive effect that Western missionaries had in countries dominated by empires. And there's definitely some some worthwhile information in there about how oftentimes the missionaries were working against the empire, against the colonizers, and that certainly seemed worth uh, noting. But my concern with an article like that is very colonially, colonially minded folks will just kind of pat themselves on the back and say, you see, overall, it was a positive influence for us to uh, intervene in those places and set up shop. Love to hear some comments on that. That's going to be really interesting to read. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I just looked and I don't see the link, but I'm hoping it comes in. Um, Yeah, it's, it, it reminds me. And I, again, having not read the article, but just so far from what I've been told, it reminds me of the idea that, um, you know, um, Bartolome de las Casas was considered to be a very kind person to the indigenous population of the West Indies. Um, he, uh, he fought for indigenous rights. He condemned Columbus in the courts of Europe and really brought him up on what we would now today call you know, human rights charges. Uh, he recorded in his uh, writings uh, how many millions that he thought of indigenous peoples were hunted down and killed by the Christians. And he was a, uh, I believe, Dominican priest. Um, the thing that he never did, though, after doing all that for indigenous people, the one thing that he never did was he never questioned their right to be there. He only questioned hmm. how they were treated once they were there. So in other words, he saw the Europeans um, had an, a, uh, had a right to be there and to conquer, but he wanted them to do it in a kinder and gentler way to quote uh, 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 W. Uh, Bush. Yeah. Um, and so um, I'm not sure that uh, perhaps they drew from some cases that um, are anomalies. But overall, I would say that the, from my understanding, and um, this has been one of the, my fields of study, it's what I'm trained in is missiology. Um, it's generally, there have always been sort of what I call in my um, uh, my book, Living in Color, I, I have a chapter written in honor of some of those people. I call it the, the good guys, even though some of them are women. Um, and uh, there are those who were, to one degree or another, better than all the rest. But by and large, the whole thing was a colonial project that has really done more damage around the world than um, any person probably can understand, even myself. I, I know the damage it's done in Indian country, um, which is horrendous. Uh, and, and I know from my hearing from my friends in Africa and in India and other places, some of the damage has been done, but, um, yeah, I think the story like that sounds like it needs to be balanced with more of, uh, what the greater truth is. Yeah. Two, uh, two quick reflections. Uh, Randy, when I was his student, 
uh, almost 10 years ago now, uh, introduced me to this idea of the minority report, that within every generation, you do have voices of critique and resistance, and that um, if you chain them all together, you know the phrase, the exception that proves the rule? That's the minority report, and that within every era or every period, every movement, you do have voices that you can find that will tell you uh, in, a, in a different way what was really going on. And that's actually a great way to learn about the ma majority perspective is the concerns and the critique of the minority voice. And so that's a great idea. my hope is that Randy, one of his future books is called The Minority Report, and it would be like his uh, People's History of the USA. It would be his Zen-style um, uh, historical work where he points out the, the historical voices that we should listen to in each era. Well, even the – I was just contacted the other day by a publisher who wants to publish what I think may be my final book in uh, sort of what I call the Christian ghetto um, – uh, and and they want to publish a book that I proposed uh, over a year ago to another publisher, and then that person went somewhere else. And um, it was it's called Mission and the Cultural Other: Hopeful New Paradigms, which are basically, in my estimation, would be sort of truth telling on mission and and then a better way to go about what people call mission or service. Um, but it really, and I won't give everything away here, but the the point is, is our modern day mission movement started. Uh, with racism. It started as a racist endeavor and, and it started out of basically Yale. Uh, and uh, because the, the people they were bringing there to study uh, and they were having this, uh, you know, uh, kind of mission to people all around the world who were coming there to study, to be preachers and missionaries to, to their own people. Um, they started, and it was some of the Cherokees that actually did it. They started marrying into the, the, uh, you know, um, high-class New England families, and they said, well, that's enough of that. And so then they said, we'll start sending missionaries out. Uh, that way they won't marry our daughters, basically. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, Rob, the second thing I just wanted to bring up is that, you know, this um, debate is happening in many other realms as well. I just listened, you know, Chris Hedges is one of my favorite authors and thinkers. And he has a new book out. I think it's called America, the Farewell Tour. And he was on uh, one of the podcasts I listened to about the CBC uh, ideas is one of my favorite podcasts. And he was on and they actually played a clip of Steven Pinker, who argues that everything is getting better. And, his, and statistically, if you look at all these categories, that the world is mm -hmm. actually in, progressing and improving. Uh, in things like violence and uh, murder rates and uh, child mortality uh, and all sorts of things. And so he actually is arguing for human uh, progress and improvement. And Chris Hedges basically says he's off his rocker. He should get out of Harvard more. Uh, if you travel the country at all, <laughs> uh, that's just not true. And um, so just to say that it's a, it's a, concern that's happening in many areas. And uh, I can actually send out a link to that Hedges uh, podcast, that episode, because I think it's, it's it touching on exactly what, what we're talking about. Okay, great. Thank you. Hey, can you post that for all our listeners? Yes, I will. I'm uh, piecing it all together. Thanks. Yeah. 
Continuing the wild card round. What else do you want to talk about? Not necessarily that's been on an episode at all, just anything at all. So I'm curious. Uh, so there's a movie that came out. I don't know if it's just a Netflix movie, or but I saw it on Netflix called Wind River. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Renner. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I'd love to to get everybody's take on that. It seemed to me the the process still ends up in the same place as dances with wolves. Cause it's still about a white guy, hmm. but I'd love to get thoughts if anybody's seen it. Yeah, I have seen it. Does anybody else? I have. Yes. Yeah. My wife and I have seen it. My wife being from the wind river reservation. See what I mean? Randy's always got one card that you don't know about. <laughs> I want to I, I, I hear Ryan and uh, Rob's uh, understanding of what they saw. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here. It's um, obviously deeply disturbing. Uh, there's some scenes in that movie with whenever something like that shows up in any film. Um, it's hard to shake. Um, I think, uh, it really kind of tested some of my own pacifist leanings because a lot of folks died in that movie. And I'm like, you know what? I think I'm all right with these folks dying. Um, but I, I, I think, and I'm sure that this is probably not the, the best articulated perspective on this, but it is another white guy comes to the rescue movie. Um, I, is that any better when a white guy comes to the rescue, if it's a white guy that has made the problem? You know, these a lot of the problems that have, that Native folks are facing have been caused by white people. And I wonder, is there part of this theme that keeps showing up in these movies because white folks are going to need to fix it um, as far as doing some sort of restorative justice for Native communities? I don't know. I mean, I like Jeremy Renner as uh, as, a, as an actor, as what he uh, – how he portrays characters. However – that has nothing to do with, uh, to me, the fact that I didn't see anything in there. Uh, Rob, I think you kind of mentioned this, is, that shows why some of this stuff is taking place or why mm, um, right. the, 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 the big question hanging in the air. And, and, and what I saw was that the, the FBI that come in to, to investigate the, the agent, you know, and uh, Jeremy Renner's character, you know, it's, it's still an invasion in many ways. Like it's, it's, yeah. and the contractors that were, were in the movie and I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but no, go ahead and spoil um, it. It's fine. Um, you know, the contractors who are working on the reservation, um, that are, I think all of them white, um, you know, it, they're the ones that perpetrate, the rape and and the one the the murder um, of yeah. the the native young woman, you know, it's still to me is is colonialism. But it's mm-hmm. if they are going for that, it's so subtle that I think most people would miss it. And I, and I don't think the, that that's I don't think that's right. It needed to be yeah. stated very clearly. Mm-hmm. Don't they, don't they put a graphic on screen at the end of the film talking about the plight of Native communities right. regarding these subjects? Yes, right. yes. It's but it, about yeah. missing and murdered Indigenous women. But it's at right. the end, right? I mean, you have to you have to you know you could easily turn off the movie because the screen goes to black, I think, or or at least it's right mm-hmm. at the end where it pops up. It's like, well, mm-hmm. why wasn't this? You know, I mean, 
it seems like, oh, it's an afterthought almost to me. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like an afterthought. And in and, and this movie specifically, one of the things I thought could have been addressed better, because, I mean, it was it was an interesting movie in that it truly upset me and compelled me. But at, and haunted me for weeks. I thought about it. Yeah. But at the same time, I could have thought of a dozen things they could have done better. But the one thing I thought was really interesting, and it's similar to the Longmire series, uh, if you've seen that, is just mm-hmm. the proximity of the oil fields and the, the fracking to the native uh, land, and so that that proximity of those most largely male compounds being in proximity to uh, indigenous communities is a recipe for disaster. I also, because I have friends up in Canada am very aware of the oil shale fields up in Alberta and similar problems up there. So it is not just uh, Western United States. So that's all I wanted to say. Uh, all right. On, on the issue of uh, the movie, yes, it's, uh, you know, when Ryan's referring to uh, similar to Dances with Wolves, the, we always joke and say, well, Dances with Wolves was about two white people surrounded by Indians. And, uh, and, and in a way, this is the same thing. The problem is, is that um, if it's an all Indian movie, it will only get played on the indie screens uh-huh. and most people will never be able to see it. So a good example is uh, Neither Wolf Nor Dog um, that's just been out for the last, I don't know, six, eight months. And no one's seen it because it only plays in small private venues. Um, that's one thing. So, so basically white people won't go see it, uh, just like they don't go generally to all black movies. So it's a matter of patronage and the success of the movie in that sense. So that's a sort of a necessary thing. And then um, on the colonialism part, um, I don't know in a in a you know two hour movie. I don't know how deep you can actually go, um, and to to make that point. So they, but but here's the deal. Um, this has a been a persistent problem with Native women ever since the fur trappers. And so we're talking about the fur trappers in the east. So that this is back in the late 1500s. Native women have constantly been abused, raped, um, uh, murdered. Uh, it's been a constant. You can just follow the history of the United States, and you will find that pattern. And um, so there's there's that and the fact that no one really knows about this. Uh, so it brings to light that, which is, which is really good. The other thing is these man camps. Part of uh, part of the problem of uh, this this relates directly to the environment as well. Andrea Smith has a great book called Conquest, which she basically um, parallels the uh, the rape and murder of indigenous people to the rape of the land, and this is no more apparent than in the oil fields, in the shale fields, and in the gas fields of places like North Dakota, the far north, as they call it, so the far south. Um, it, where, uh, you know, these man camps are spread out all over and they, they generate, no matter how uh, well you make them look, they generate the abuse of women and particularly because the reservations are around there of native women. And so this, this is a common story. 
quickly, the other thing that it did was to um, to give a, people an idea of sort of reservation life, right? Um, both the, the hardness of it and uh, maybe some of the beauty of it. Um, I don't think it showed, you know, very many positive image, images because that's not what the, the movie was about. But there was one scene in it that I particularly liked that I think was really Indian humor. And it was when the father was setting down to kill himself with the gun. And the Jeremy Renner's uh, character comes over to him and the father's got his face all painted. Um, looks like uh, some kind of war paint or something. And he says to him, he says, uh, you know, after he sort of decides he's not going to kill himself, he says something like, um, uh, how did you learn to paint your face like that? And, and the Indian guy says, uh, I saw it on TV. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, oh, Alicia. Wow. I'm I'm sorry it yeah. took so long. But, yeah. Alicia, what was your wild card? So I was in um, a particular environment last Monday where there was a conversation coming up about a person who leads a nonprofit group, and he was um, talking about how he was working to, um, and this was in context of like an interfaith kind of thing, but I like it could apply to anything. Um, and his focus was um, bringing together a multicultural nonprofit group to impact the community. Um, the frustration I had with this conversation was there was a lot of name dropping of people in different, um, (laughs) how can I strategically say this? Um, there's a lot of name dropping. So like he's, for me, it felt like he's, he's trying to create uh, credibility by proximity to people who are known in their particular, um, in their particular (laughs) um, communities and he's bringing them together and he's um, or allegedly bringing them together and using all these buzzwords like making hubs and it all sounds really great, but he's, how do we, if we're in these environments and in these conversations, how can we be better partners with the communities we're reaching out to? And is it our job to initiate these things? And how do we create authentic credibility versus, hey, I know these five people from these different groups and um, it doesn't resonate as genuine. It seems very self-serving. I don't know really what the intention or impact is on what that person is doing. But as a person who's not a person of color, who would like to be an advocate and an ally and um, potentially work in that kind of environment, like how can I do it without being an asshole? Can I say that I have no answers? Okay. But I will amen the problem. If that helps at all to affirm the problem. About three years ago, I had to leave a major platform that I was a part of Mm -hmm. that had a huge listenership and viewership. Mm -hmm. And the last three years have been a major study for me, just anecdotally, about about, um, the draw and the power of celebrity culture and, and that platform. So it has been interesting to me, you know, when I left there, I tried to, I deleted all my social media stuff and then I uh, tried to come back on, but like, I know this is, these are stupid metrics, but my Twitter 
connections are less than one-tenth of what they used to be. And my viewership on my blog, the listeners to our podcast are minuscule compared to that. So that platform has a major draw. And I understand the appeal of wanting to network and connect with big uh, anchor points in the web, uh, big nodes and crossroads, because the ability to broadcast your message or recruit to your conference or to network, you know, when you have a bandwidth that's that large, I do understand the appeal of it. Here's the problem. I've also seen the ugly underbelly of organizing conferences where, you know, you pay thousands of dollars to get headliners there because that does draw people. People still come when there's big names on the bill. And so you can organize a great conference, but if there's not name recognition, it does not draw people. I've done it both ways, and it is undeniable that big names draw people who are willing to pay the entrance fee. And so I, I just want to amen that you your articulation of the problem and say that as somebody who had a big platform and lost that platform and then has tried to organize smaller networked things, mm-hmm. I can tell you there is not just an incremental difference, but an exponential difference. Well, and I, I guess the other piece for me is there are other groups that are using this hub idea to be locally relevant in their communities. And, um, it's great to be an innovator, but like if there's already a wheel, maybe you could f- talk to people that are already using the wheel and partner with them. And um, like, uh, I, yeah. Let me um, say, cause I have a little inside information and I won't mention names, but um, I, I think I know exactly the meeting you're talking about. And I think Edith and I were there. Um, and um, that's exactly, I think, uh, it's, I'm surprising if that story was told, that that thing you just said wasn't told at the beginning because um, the person who I think you may be talking about tried to organize it and could not and then had to go to people from a totally different perspective to actually do it for him yeah. because the, the, the background that he has which is evangelicalism has no credibility among those other groups. And so, and so uh, he had sort of wow. failed and then they had to redirect the thing. And it was actually a pretty good meeting, but I, th- I think the meeting changed um, about two thirds of the way through when a very quiet native American woman with only an associate's degree with no sort of, um, uh, standing like there were bishops and there were priests and there were, you know, people from all religions there. And when she was able to go to the organizers and say, you know, people are going to walk away from this thing and they're just going to do what they do all the time. They have things in their head and they're going to say, Oh, I met so-and-so. So, but she said, no one's speaking from their heart. Mm-hmm. And of course the woman I'm speaking about is my wife. And, uh, and I think the organizers then took that seriously and then changed the tone of the meeting. And then I think that it was, um, some things changed about the last maybe quarter or third of the meeting because, um, because you had someone there who was brave enough to say, I don't hear anybody speaking from their heart here. So, um, so I don't know. Um, yeah, I think, uh, uh, 
It's a difficult thing. Um, we we need organizers, right? And sometimes they need uh, a little building their egos or whatever to maybe keep doing what they're doing. I don't know. But at the same time, you know, I, I look at the – uh, with all the degrees and all the experience and all the different places, all these people are coming from and all the hundreds of uh, churches and things that they're responsible to. And I think of the, probably the most least qualified person there really had the, to me, the greatest effect on the meeting. Yeah. Well, you know, one of, one of the things I've been thinking of is, uh, you know, I, I don't know, from my experience, I, I think that many people have an idea of what peace looks like. Mm. And, uh, you know, for, for the white Western world, I don't have any empirical data for that and I don't care, but I think a lot of people have an idea of what peace looks like. I don't think that's the issue in my opinion. My question is what's the road to peace look like? To me, that's much more important. Wow. Wow. You know, uh, that's powerful, and I might borrow that. Um, This week is the second week of Advent, and so uh, we're a conversational community at my church, and so our conversation topic this week is, you know, what area of the world or what area of life would you most like to see peace come to? Because, you know, we have the passing of the peace every week where we say, peace be with you. And then in the Advent series, you know, one of the candles is peace. That's one of the four topics. And yet peace is pretty elusive. So I think your question is actually better than my question, and I might steal it. Passing of the peace, was that not when, uh, in 1492, when that started, passing peace over? I guys, I, I, he always ha- is ahead of me. He's always one step ahead of me. Oh boy. Yeah. I think it's when the, the pipe is passed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I can, I, can I just quickly just throw a few things out and then anybody else The I, I think it, um, it's the roads already started. First of all, I think we have uh, a building peace movement in this country that's been building for some time. I think the fact that the military is having trouble getting people uh, in the military is another one. I think the fact that uh, we just launched a, and some of you were at the meeting, the national uh, campaign for conscientious objectors. Uh, I think um, I've, I've written a chapter in a Huffington Post blog about um, proposing a peace pentagon. Uh, where we strategize on peace uh, more than we do war, right? and that comes from our native uh, history. Um, so I, I think there's, uh, and, and I also in that same, I think in the chapter I, uh, in a book, um, I talk about creating um, video games uh, for peace strategy and those kinds of things. So I think there's a whole array of practical things. Those are just a couple ideas that get people thinking, but there's a whole array of practical things that can be done to on the road to peace. You know, I'm reminded, though, when you were saying that, because because there's there's forces out there that are incredibly powerful. And in a a line from Don McLean's uh, American Pie um, came back to mind. 
uh, in one of the verses where he says the players, probably indicative of Bob Dylan and, and the anti-war movement, the players tried to take the field. The marching band refused to yield. You recall what was revealed the day the music died. And what I think, you know, what I'm thinking is uh, we can't kid ourselves and think that there's not going to be pushback. Um, that, you know, any kind of peace movement will be met with potentially violent resistance to that. Um, I mean, Kent State. I mean, we, you know, peace movement, typically you're not the ones holding the guns. So how do you, how do you push back when the people holding the guns have all the power? Yeah. That's why I think peacemaking is better than pacifism. But it can't be, you know, th- throwing rocks and at uh, police and smashing windows of businesses because you're just a white kid with a trust fund and you go to Portland State. Um, yeah. yeah. One side throws rocks, the other throws bullets. Um. So strategizing is, uh, you know, I mean, Gandhi strategized, Martin King and the um, the SNCC, uh, Students for Nonviolent Corn Canadian move, uh, Movement, and uh, um, there's a whole lot of strategy. And the only way to win uh, against a force like that is not with bullets, but it's lack of cooperation with them making money. So when they lose enough money, they will change, whatever those strategies are. That's the well, bottom the bottom dollar, as they say. Yeah, and I, I obviously have an angle that I'm thinking about. And to me, the, the road to peace is often soaked with blood. Um, there's a cost for peace. And, and sometimes it, the question is that we have to ask ourselves, is what am I willing to give for peace? Uh, many people have given their lives. And, and I think the road to peace can often be marked with suffering and pain. Um, but it's something that's worth it, but I I don't think it's something to give up on. Um, to me, um, not to get, you know, too, too religious, I guess, but to me, I followed, try to follow Jesus as best I can. And I don't think that I can say that I truly try to follow Jesus if I'm not willing to suffer and potentially die for something that is just and right. Well, it sounds like we should probably do another episode on peacemaking in the new year. There's a lot that's happening right now that uh, we could draw off of. So with the time we have left, I want to play a game. If you all are game. Uh, I want to know, our next live Zoom chat is going to be that first weekend in February. I would like to know from uh, each of you, I'll go last because I had time to think about this since I made up the game. Um, what do you think will be the biggest news story between now and the first weekend in February? <sighs> I'll give you a second to think about it. Oh, I already got mine. Go. Cool. The, the biggest news story will be in front of the whole world. It will be as Donald Trump swears in his new attorney general. And then the first words of the attorney general will be, Mr. Trump, could you turn around and put your hands behind your back? 
<laughs> oh no! Wow. That, Which, I guess maybe that's a fantasy. I'm sorry. That guy. <laughs> my uh, my headline for the next few months is actually completely opposite of that. We will be shocked by how nothing ever changes. That's my prediction. <laughs> will we really be shocked, though? Well, that's a good point. <laughs> You, Rob, you don't believe in uh, death by a thousand paper cuts? No, no, I, I don't. Unfortunately, I don't think that. Um, I think if you have uh, unlimited resources, you can deal with those paper cuts. Wow! Wow! You're gonna like episode 29, by the way. It's uh, it's my little, it's my little pep talk about why we need to be brave and bold because it probably won't work anyway. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Looking forward to that. All right. Anybody else a uh, headline for the next two months? I am so tired of the headlines. It just, <laughs> just keeps, it's, it, I'm not surprised anymore. Yeah. You know what I started doing? I started uh, on my social media posting positive things, but not reading the, the, the feed. So I don't see on days where I'm not super uh, up for it. I don't read all of the negative stories. Yeah. I just put good in the world. Yeah, it's a good thought. Ryan, do you have a headline? I just saw the news update that uh, John Kelly will be resigning at the end of the year. Uh, I might venture a guess that... Uh, James Mattis will be close behind, so that might uh, mm. that might happen by that time. Is what I'm kind of uh, assuming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, single payer national health care gets uh, enacted. You just said you wanted positive stuff, so that's you know. ambitious. Uh, We're just making stuff up now. <laughs> the biggest wow. headline will be "White Man Stops and Listens." <laughs> but that's well, just a Babylon right. B article. My uh, Babylon B. Yes, for those of you who are uninitiated with the Babylon B, go ahead and look it up. It's like a Christian version of the Onion. It's a fake newspaper. It is. The headlines are hilarious. The stories aren't always. But the headlines are great. Um, my prediction is that this thing with China, where um, the the woman who was arrested in Vancouver and then extradited to the United States while uh, Trump was meeting with the the bigwig from China, is going to. I just think our trade war with China is going to escalate and it might become militarized. I am very nervous about this. Uh, distraction to take away from the Mueller investigation and that this this thing going on with China is going to spiral out of control. So that's my favorite. I have it on good information that you might be correct. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the it's definitely interesting because of the, the islands that they've built, the Chinese have built, in the South China Sea on coral reefs, by the way, you know, go China. Great job. Um, you know, they're putting all sorts of offensive and defensive weapons on these islands they've created. Uh, 
she, his obvious goal is to control all trade and economic power in that in that in those shipping lanes in the South China Sea, and that's a third of the world's economy passing through those shipping lanes. But at the other, uh, on the other side, a, a little region we've forgotten about. Uh, the Middle East, the Strait of Hormuz, um, is also seeing a lot of activity, uh, which is this narrow strait, which is right next to Iran. So I think there's two areas where there is a lot of tension ramping up. Oh boy. God help bet, us. You can bet there's a whole lot of folks, mostly men. Uh, strategizing about um, not only what will happen if, but how do we make it happen. So people may think that, uh, wow, you guys talk about this a lot, but I just need to remind everybody, peace is in our first name. It's sort of what we do around here. So just thought, just for the record, one other thing. Hey, I want to thank you three for being here this morning. It has been wonderful to chat and uh, compare notes with you. I love these conversations. Thank you for your support. And if anybody else wants to be a part of that February Zoom, uh, become a Patreon supporter, and uh, we will send you the link so that you can join in that February live recording. Alicia, Ryan, Rob, thank you so much for being here this morning and for your support. Yeah, no problem. It was a great time. Thanks for having us.